the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. And I'm maybe, maybe I've made a, an unwise decision. I'm choosing a Friday afternoon to talk about productivity. How's your productivity this afternoon? 0487 Send me a text. I've got a uh, productivity tip to keep me going through the weekend. I'd love to hear it. 0487 Of course, finding workers and productive ones at that is a big issue for agriculture. We'll take a look at that before half past 12 this afternoon. And we've been looking a little bit at our tropical fruits, getting excited about mangoes. Well, I've got good news if you're a fan of pineapples. They're a little early, but they're fantastic. We'll look at that harvest before half past 12 as well. We'll uh, get in touch with the Weather Bureau. And before one o'clock, we're going to take you out to the shed. It's always a great place to spend an afternoon, and there are a lot of people making really good use of theirs. That's all still to come here at the Queensland Country Hour. 0487 is the message is the number to send me a message. I'd love a productivity tip this afternoon as we head through our Friday Arvo. First today, though, we're going to start with the fire risk because despite the fact that the official fire season is probably a couple of weeks away, if this week's been anything to go by, there's certainly no time to waste on getting your bushfire survival plan up to scratch. On Monday, a bushfire in the Burham Coast National Park in the Bundaberg region threatened the community of Coonar before being contained, and police are now investigating if that fire was deliberately lit. Meanwhile, in central Queensland, fires have raged through thousands of hectares of crucial grazing land, land that was really just on the road to recovery from drought. Dingo grazier Anita Davison tells Paul Culliver almost all of her property has burned. We're doing okay. We're just going into recovery mode now. Um, Just uh, very fortunately so far, the cattle in the front half of our property, uh, which is the uh, freehold section of our property, um, they have survived, so that's great. And um, we just haven't made it out to... Um, fully to the back of our property um, where the last sort of yeah, line of defence for us, they, um, yeah, there was just um, really needed to be back burning to, to co- try and contain it from getting onto that national park um, after our property sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, just uh, we haven't been out there to see how those cattle are, but I would imagine they'll be okay. They're pretty clever animals, cattle, and um, and the cattle that are uh, our a uh, friend who was adjusting off us. All of his cows have survived. He's since just removed them. And um, they're, they're basically, they're safe, but they're now off the property because there's, um, there's no basically no grass. There's a couple of little pockets of, of grass in the paddocks, but not enough to, to last too long, yeah. Yeah. So all the land that burnt at your place, was that all grazing land? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've got a mixture of uh, forestry lease, which is... Uh, up in the on the edge of the Dawson Ranges and some creek flats from there. Um, the Dawson Ranges actually form our border with our neighbouring properties. So we've got properties um, to the south of us that um, uh, are over the over the top of the range, um, and I believe it's impacted some of that that land as well. I just um, I'm not sure. Haven't had much of an up, update from the other side of the mountain. And we've also got forestry. So the forestry uh, lease is um, part of our property as well. So that's, yeah, all part of 
country. Pretty hard to get into and inaccessible, but down on the flat there's been a pretty big effort to try and um, halt it and stop it from affecting much more country sort of thing. So look, 90, 95% of your, of your land is burnt. Do, do you have uh, like a, a house on that property? We do. Uh, Saturday was our catastrophic day. So um, on Saturday morning, uh, through the night on Friday night, we had a wind change. That, that fire was just sort of sneaking along the top of the ranges and we were keeping an eye on it. Uh, some extensive, you know, sort of breaks had been put in um, by our neighbour and um, we were sort of just keeping an eye on because that's all you could do was monitor it from that point from up the top of the ranges. And then um, we just had bad luck with the wind on Saturday um, and it, um, it actually, most majority of the damage was done on Saturday with the, the, the tailwind behind the fire. Um, we backburnt off breaks at our house about nine o'clock on Saturday night because uh, we, yeah, we had to stay and we had other neighbours come and help us with that as well. Mm. And so, Anita, how close did your, how, like, how close did the fire come to your house? Um, well, we backburnt off the break, um, which is about uh, 50 metres away from our house, mm. um, and it met the fire front, which it was a fascinating thing and terrifying thing to watch. Um, mm. The fire coming towards us was bright red, just like those images you see down in you know Victoria. I go, I didn't believe fire could be that colour, and, and you see it on TV, and, and then, yeah, we had a red hot high flame and the roaring coming towards the house and we had just this little lovely cool golden orange flame going towards it and like going hurry up meet it <laughs> you know um and it met at about 100 meters 150 meters from the house that met the fire front so and it did what it was supposed to do and put that fire out for yeah, it. Wow. So save the house shed people yeah and that was must have just been a wave of relief when you realized that it worked yeah yeah oh yeah it's it you know um, it is magic when it works. Uh, Anita, how, how, how many head of cattle you got? Uh, at the moment, we were. that's part of our problem. We were sort of rebuilding our numbers after the drought and everyone was really holding on to their grass. And um, we had a lot of grass and we only have about 200 head here at the moment. You know, everyone's got a big body of grass after the rain came after the drought and we're all being pretty conservative, being that there's uh, El Nino on the way. We've ended up having a bit too much of a grass problem, I guess, in the end. Um, and, yeah, no grass now. <laughs> right. How are you going to feed them? Um, we, well, we, we, were, we were trying to organise uh, a truck up from uh, New South Wales, but the freight is, uh, the hay is really affordable, but the freight, um, it's pretty expensive, and that's just the standard going rate. It's just the distance. We're working through it, and, um, yeah, we're just taking one day at a time, and, um, yeah, just, I've, 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 you know, I've asked for, um, not, not afraid to say, I've asked for help from Aussie yeah. Helpers this morning. I've sent through a request and not sure how that all works. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll work through it and, yeah, just get through it in the end. So we, we are just very grateful that it didn't spread further, I guess, because, yeah, uh, it's just, it's, it's pretty hard <laughs> to, to drive through um, grass on the way to town but you know um that's okay um i guess one of the things with fire when it comes through it does does clean things a little and um gives you an open like a a blank canvas i guess to to work on for the future so that's how we're going to try and view it as a blank canvas to start again 
Anita Davison at Bridgewater near Dingo speaking with Paul Culliver. And about a 1,000 hectares and the stockyards at Belmont Research Station have also been destroyed in a grass fire at Etna Creek north of Rockhampton. CQ Regional President of Agforce John Baker says feeding the 1,000 head on the station will be a struggle without rain. At this stage, our understanding is about around about 1,000 hectares of grass country there, but there is an old set of stockyards that has been destroyed and obviously some fencing as well that will have been damaged. We, we need to get out there now and have a look and see just exactly what the damage is, but there will be some fencing damage. But no, no livestock have been hurt in the, in the fire, though. So oh, that's only, good. And I've obviously lost quite a lot of you know, 1,000 hectares of grass that's been burnt. Uh, what impact do you think this might have on, on Belmont? Well, it's obviously going to have an impact on the, the grazing side of it because there you are know, 1,000 hectares of grass out there. And, and the, with the conditions we've had this year, the, the grass is a bit shorter than it normally is this time of the year. So it's going to put a lot of pressure on the rest of the, 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 oh, the, the, rest of the paddocks there now to be able to run the cattle that would normally be out there. So it, it will have an impact and hopefully it rains before too long. And, and if it does, then we'll have some nice, beautiful green feed out there. So yeah. In the meantime, we're a bit short on feed. As long as we get rain before too long, Paul, and and, and obviously the, the seasonal outlook is not great for rain, and it's the dry time of the year anyway, where you don't normally expect too much rain. But so hopefully we get some early storms, and if we do, well then we'll be fine. But if not, we might have to lighten off some of the stock. And I imagine it also um, takes your researchers' focus away from what they're meant to be doing. Well, no, most of the research is happening on the other end of the property, which hasn't been affected by the fire. So this. You know, the areas that are out there is where we run stock, but they're not ones that are actually involved in the active research. So, so it probably won't have much of an impact at all on the research that's happening. Oh, that's good. So you, it's not like you've you've lost anything sort of mid-trial or anything like that? No, 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 my understanding is no, that the, the, all the livestock that are out there aren't, aren't involved in the, in the research, so... Uh, won't have any impact on that, is my understanding anyway at this stage. You know, it, it'll clean up some of the old, I mean, there'll be a bit of lantana and those sorts of things that are around about that'll get burnt, and so that'll be, there'll, there's always some good good sides to these things. <laughs> yeah, once we get some rain and get some nice green feet on it, it'll we'll think, oh, gee, that was a good, good outcome. Forever finding the silver lining. That's Ag Force's CQ President John Baker speaking with Paul Culliver. And a very timely reminder with more warm and, and windy weather ahead, we'll check in with the Bureau in about 20 minutes' time that it's worth p- turning your mind to your bushfire survival plan if you haven't already this season. Your fire plan should consider what you will do if you and your family cannot leave your property and are forced to escape from a burning house during an intense bushfire. You need to think about when you would leave, what you would take and what you would do with your pets. Being prepared with contingency plans for different scenarios will help to keep you calm and increase your chances of survival. Keep listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. From fires to floods, a team of researchers has developed a new tool that significantly reduces the time taken to process data and give accurate forecasts about which areas are going to be impacted and to what extent by flooding. And they've used Queensland data to help develop it. Professor of Hydrology and Water at the University of Melbourne, Rory Nathan, tells Melissa Madison more about it. We've actually got pretty good ability to model uh, and predict 
the behaviour floods in the landscape. But the trouble is the models that do this well are very, very slow. And in fact, in, in some cases, the models take longer to simulate the floods than they actually occur in practice. So it means that our accurate models are never used in flood forecasting just because they're too slow and cumbersome. The main value of the model that we've, or the modelling approach that we've developed is that it is as accurate as our most advanced models currently are, but it's a thousand times faster. So rather than taking 20 or 30 hours to do a simulation, we can now do this in sort of 30 seconds or so. So with that shortened, incredibly shortened time frame, we're not losing any accuracy in those forecastings? We're losing 1% in accuracy. A key uncertainty, put it that way, in our forecasts is the uncertainty associated with the rainfall. And that's, that's up to Mother Nature. But what we've done here is make sure that we can actually take account of that uncertainty in our own fall forecast and map that accurately into estimates of floods over millions of different grid points over the landscape as the flood emergency unfolds. So it really will enable us to get a much better handle on the actual likely extent and depth of the flooding and the uncertainty around it, which is something that's just not possible today. So if we see in a a situation where we've got a flood event unfolding and then some rainfall happens that wasn't foreshadowed, can that data be fed live into the modelling to give a, a more accurate prediction? That's exactly right. So the Bureau of Meteorology provides Australia with updated rain forecasts regularly throughout these events. And with this modelling approach, we can now take advantage of those in real time. One of the the case studies that you looked at was the Burnett River, which is in Queensland. How did the modelling hold up with with that historic event? Very well. Our models were able to reproduce uh, with 99% accuracy the estimates of flood extent and depth uh, throughout the Burnett River uh, as a result of that flood. But uh, we're confident that that this is really a bit of a a game changer compared to what's currently being used. And how has Nils or or the team been able to get that incredible speed increase? How has that been achieved? If I could answer that in 10 seconds, uh, it wouldn't (laughs) be much of a paper. (laughs) But uh, what we're doing is using a combination of traditional modelling and we're kind of taking, applying some quite sophisticated mathematical transforms and uh, machine learning tools and combining it all into a single package. So really, we're able to achieve these speed increases by using a combination of our very advanced models applied in a very simple and very complicated ways. And we add to that some mathematical transforms and machine learning, and we can then uh, produce these final estimates uh, very rapidly as as a result. When would you anticipate that we could perhaps see this being rolled out in, you know, disaster management situations? This is something that I think is really ready for adoption. Uh, It's a matter of our resources and capacity to do this. And I said, first of all, Neil has to finish his PhD. But look, I'd be suggesting that in a year or two, uh, this is something that we should be able to see uh, picked up uh, by some key agencies. That's Professor Rory Nathan from the University of Melbourne with Melissa Madison. That research was published in the international journal Nature Water. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
It's 20 past 12. Do you have a Friday afternoon productivity tip for me? 0487993222 is the number to send me a text. And I don't mind if it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek productivity tip as well. We've already had a bit of a suggestion for a pub lunch around uh, the office today. What's your Friday afternoon productivity tip? 0487993222 is the number to send me a text. And you don't have to go real far to find a farm that's probably had some struggles filling permanent jobs. It's one of the biggest problems plaguing the agricultural sector more broadly. It's estimated that across the food chain, the workforce shortage is more than 170,000 jobs. Now, one approach that's been taken to address the crisis is a paid gap year program run by the National Farmers Federation, where young people with no experience in agriculture are hosted by an experienced farming family. Landline's Courtney Wilson went to one of those families to check it out. Push up, push up. 18-year-old Tash Hanford from Queensland's Sunshine Coast is taking a gap year on a farm. The teenager with no experience working in ag has had to face her fears head-on, especially when it comes to handling cattle. Because I was so new to it, I just didn't understand how you overcame it. But then, yeah, just getting involved, like, just practice makes perfect. And I'm not perfect by any means, but um, definitely you sort of get to know them and what they're going to do. While Tash has been getting to know her way around the farm, the farm's owners, Bruce and Viv Hutchinson, have been getting to know her. Everything she does, she embraces, which is good. She's confident if we ask her things... Um, she never says no or, or get sour, she'll, she'll do it. Bruce and Viv Hutchinson have always lived and worked on the land. They farm across multiple properties in central Queensland and the North Burnett with their children and their families. They graze cattle and grow crops, have a feedlot and a contract to supply beef to Coles. It's a busy life made busier by the fact that for years they've struggled to find and keep staff. We've been looking for truck driver for 18 months and still haven't got a truck driver. So that truck's sitting still unless we can drive it. Um, we need another person down the feedlot. We've been trying to get extra uh, people, staff, to help us for, for three years. and um, It's nearly impossible to get permanent staff. In Australia, agriculture employs almost a quarter of a million people and contributes more than $90 billion to the national economy. But finding and keeping workers has long plagued the sector. Most people will be familiar with the workforce challenges we experience in agriculture uh, and the Agri Start program was born out of uh, this recognition of a need for a young talent pipeline to come into our industry and specifically create a way for people with limited experience to have a go in agriculture in a really supported environment. Ag Career Start is an initiative of the National Farmers Federation. It's a paid gap year program for young people interested in working in agriculture but who don't necessarily come off the land. They can't be what they can't see and they really struggle to find a way into agriculture even if they have got the desire. And We see all the time in the program young people coming to us saying, I've wanted to work in agriculture for so long but I just can't figure out how to get a foot in the door. The program matches participants with farmers. Its coordinators do the screening and matchmaking. 
host farms are vetted to ensure they're equipped to host inexperienced young people. And then on the participant side of things, when they apply, they tell us what kind of farm industry they'd like to work in, whether that be cattle, whether that be aquaculture, it could be cotton, you name it, we work across um, many different commodities. When Bruce and Viv heard about the program, they thought they had nothing to lose by giving it a go. I've always wanted to give a young person out of the city a, a chance to see what we enjoy and love. And I thought, well, this is our chance. It's a big responsibility hosting a young person, especially when the work requires living somewhere remote. Inevitably, that means long hours spent together. And the farmers themselves become a key support system for those they're mentoring. I can't overstate how important it is um, to open your farm gate and provide some time and mentoring to a young person. There are young people out there who want to work in agriculture. They just don't know how to get in. Tash has worked closely alongside both Bruce and Viv doing all types of jobs. Yes. She was timid around the yards mm -hmm. to start with, um, but that's just getting confidence, as you said. Um, now she's quite confident in the pound. She's coming along good with the cattle. What, go one more? For every skill mastered, there's another new one to learn. Yeah, we've thought of how to strain a fence and we've done some fencing at home with um, cementing steel posts in and um, she's done a bit of welding. Do you feel like that Bruce and Viv are the kind of people that have a lot to teach? You know, that there's a lot yeah, to learn from them? Yeah, you can tell they've got a lot of knowledge and they want to share it, they want to teach and I'm very lucky to be where I am. Bruce and Viv are doing this really amazing thing in, in opening their door to Tash and just giving her a really well-rounded first year of experience, something that she will have on her resume for years to come and she'll set herself up really well now to go on and do whatever she wants to do in the industry. Kayla Evans from the National Farmers Federation's Ag Careers Start Programming, ending that report from Landline's Courtney Wilson. And be warned, Tash, it's pretty hard to leave the North Burnet once you've spent a bit of time there. You can catch the full version of that story on Landline this Sunday at half past 12 or anytime on iView. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. If you got a productivity tip for me this afternoon, 0487993222. Maybe you'd be keen to host a young person on your place. Do you reckon you'd get much out of a program like that? I'd love to hear from you, 0487993222, especially if you've done something a bit different to try and attract workers and retain people for the jobs that, uh, that are getting around parts of regional Queensland. I'm sure... Everyone, I'd love to hear what's worked for you, 0487993222. And while we're talking about workforce issues, there's a lot of debate getting around about wages growth, whether it's keeping up with productivity and what that means more broadly in things like inflation and interest rates. Overnight, the Productivity Commission's released a report on the issue of growth and productivity, and it questions the gap between productivity and the wages and whether or not that's significant enough to be an issue for governments. But what is productivity in that economic sense, not just how they get about doing the jobs they need to do, and just how much does it affect how much people are paid? Is agriculture even part of this issue? 
Dr. Leonora Rees is a senior economics lecturer at RMIT University. She explains the importance of productivity and wages growth. The reason why we care about productivity so much is because it's the mechanism through which we can pay workers more, through which workers can be paid more for the effort that they're putting in. If we can be more productive and more resourceful in our productivity processes, that means that organisations can pay their workers more without it eating into profits. So people can be rewarded more for the labour, the effort that they've put in. With that in mind, what have we been seeing in, in recent years? Has productivity been strong or weak? The measurements that we have of productivity, and we should keep in mind that our ways of measuring productivity are not perfect, but the measurements that we do have over time, productivity in Australia has generally been quite low, quite sluggish. And at the same time, wage growth has also been quite sluggish. When we look at the difference between productivity growth and wage growth, for several years now, even before the pandemic, what we have been seeing is that productivity growth has been slightly ahead of wage growth. So even though productivity has been slow, we've generally seen that it's been inching a bit above wage growth. So there's what we call a decoupling, that they're not moving together, that productivity growth is slightly outstripping wage growth. We know from this report there is a clear link between productivity and wages growth for almost all industries except mining and agriculture. Um, what, do, what does this mean to, to industries that could potentially be skewing the data? Does that make sense? It's really important that we do break down these statistics by industry. If we look at the overall aggregate or average wage, wage growth or average measures of productivity for the economy, uh, sometimes that gives a distorted picture because we know that certain industries have different dynamics and, and quite often it's the mining industry that's been identified as the one where, due to the nature of that industry, um, profits and productivity um, can far outstrip um, labour uh, uh, wages. Um, so it is important that we do break it down according to different industries. If this gap isn't as big as we might think, you're saying that there's some variation there within industries, not just mining and ag accounting for a, a big part of the decoupling that then skews the national average. That's right. It's possible there's actually more variation once we unpack it by industry or by different skill levels of workers. So if we're looking at this overall average number, even once we've taken out mining or we've taken out agriculture and the statistics are suggesting that actually there's not such a big gap between productivity growth and wages growth, if we were to unpack that a little bit further, just going um, based off some of the ABS analysis in recent years, it suggests that you could get a different story once you start to dive deeper into individual industries. So some of the ABS statistics, for example, indicate that it was the media and telecommunications industry, uh, the finance and insurance industry, where there's been a bigger gap, a bigger decoupling between productivity growth and wages growth. Um, so it could be that we have this average number, but in some industries, you're getting um, a greater extent of productivity growth 
outstripping wages or perhaps the reverse in some other industries and that's what's giving rise to this overall number. The other thing I'd point out is for workers, if you think about people's day-to-day experience. So we're going to have different experiences depending on different skill sets. So for people at home listening to this, they might be able to relate to different experiences depending on what sector of the economy they're working in, um, what's their skill set, what's the nature of the dynamics when technological change is having a big impact on the types of skills and workers that organisations are demanding as well as the productivity of workers. Dr Leonora Reese speaking with Kathleen Ferguson. It's an interesting issue that productivity versus wages growth and the competition for workers across industries. Definitely something to keep an eye on. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 27 to 1. This week on Landline, the program giving people a taste of the farming life. Yeah, they've welcomed me with open arms and it's made the whole journey that little bit easier. Knowing that I have their support at the end of the day makes it makes me feel welcome. And the farmers feeling the pain of rewiring the nation. The trust is so broken, I, I don't know how they'll get it back. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Let's take a look at the weekend when it comes to the weather. Kimber Wong is the forecaster on duty at the Weather Bureau. Good afternoon, Kimber. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Are we starting to see some of that heat start to build as they uh, across the southern parts of our state in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Already we are seeing uh, maximum temperatures across southwest Queensland sitting at least a few degrees above average. And generally what that looks like is sort of maximum temperatures in the low to mid-30s. So certainly on the warm side already. Um, but for southern Queensland, this really is uh, sort of the start of an extended period of warmer conditions. And uh, we are looking at uh, much warmer temperatures actually starting to come through um, during the course of next week. So it certainly will be an interesting week next week with much more sort of spring-like um, temperatures um, on the way. And as a result of those warmer temperatures coming through next week as well, we will see a return to some high fire dangers um, across southern Queensland. So definitely a good uh, opportunity, I suppose, to assess your preparedness for um, bushfire um, activities, I suppose, in the coming months. Will we see winds alongside some of those warmer temperatures as well? A really good question. So in terms of the short term, uh, stronger winds are certainly still more concentrated across um, the tropical east coast and northern parts of uh, Queensland. And we've still got a number of strong wind warnings for our boaties to consider um, along the east coast north of about Mackay. So definitely um, uh, quite gusty conditions have been ongoing there for a few days now. Uh, We will see those winds gradually easing back through the course of the weekend and into early next week. And the next sort of significant wind change across um, southern Queensland is expected to come through during the course of the second half of next week. So starting to come through on Wednesday and um, Thursday in particular, the winds look like they may strengthen from the southwest direction um, during the course of the day. And as a result of that, that's probably going to be the peak in our sort of um, dangerous fire period for next week. And in terms of the, the northern parts of the state, are there still a few little showers getting around in some parts? Look, in some parts, yes, but it has been very much um, quite light activity in um, the last 24 hours or so. In fact, I don't think any of our rain gauges, even along um, the wet tropical coast, have managed to pick up anything. Mm. But look, every now and then there is a little sprinkle on the radar visible. But um, I think that's very much going to be the case uh, through the course of um, the rest of today and into tomorrow. Um, But 
during the weekend, we do see the winds gradually turning around a little more onshore along the tropical east coast and, and that moisture content starting to build up a little in the air as well. So come Sunday, we'll probably start to see some, some localised um, showers returning to the wet tropics and um, perhaps increasing a little into early next week. So Monday and Tuesday, particularly around the Cassowary Coast, we may see some localised falls up to around 20 or 30 millimetres in the gauge, which is obviously not uncommon for um, uh, for that part of the world, but maybe a little bit of a nuisance to um, to um, cane, cane growers in the area, for mm. example. And are we likely to see temperatures closer to average in, in the more northern parts? In the more northern parts, actually, at the moment, we're sitting a little below average for our mm. daytime temperatures. So those southeasterly winds that um, are certainly very noticeable, particularly along the coast, are giving a bit of a cooling influence to our temperatures during the day. So for the most part, we're sitting about two degrees um, below average uh, for the time being. But that warming trend that's definitely going to be more noticeable across southern Queensland next week will also affect um, parts of northern Queensland. And just for example, looking at Kansas forecast maximum temperatures for the next few days, sitting pretty pretty close or maybe just slightly below average at around 27 degrees but by the time we get to middle of next week it's looking like it'll bounce back up to about 30 or 31 degrees so certainly a noticeable warming trend even for um, far north Queensland next week as well. You mentioned that some of those strong winds on the coastal are are probably going to ease over the weekend what is the the coastal waters outlook? Yeah, really good question. So those strong wind warnings are in place, um, as I say, for coastal waters north of Mackay up to the Torres Strait along the east coast there. So um, those winds are reaching up to 30 knots at times today. Um, Tomorrow we have got uh, one strong wind warning still um, on the cards for the Townsville coastal waters, so still some pretty, um, I guess, the worst of the conditions just contracting to that section of the coastline. However, we will still see the winds elsewhere along the tropical east coast reaching up to 25 knots at times, so I would expect it still to remain quite choppy and not particularly friendly boating conditions even through the weekend Um, but into early next week is when we'll start to see a more significant decrease in those wind strengths. And when might we see this pattern shift? Are we we looking at it into the, the sort of middle to end of next week before we see any changes? A really good question. So in terms of the the pattern shifting, uh, largely the weather at the moment is being driven by quite a slow-moving high-pressure system out in the Tasman Sea, and that's extending a ridge of high pressure over Queensland and and giving us these southeasterly winds along the coast and those warmer temperatures across southern Queensland. And that system really isn't budging until um, we get to the middle of next week, and the next trough system moving across southern Queensland um, probably will move across southwest Queensland during Wednesday and may reach um, the southeast inland areas um, by the time we get to Thursday. So that's sort of our next um, wind change, I suppose. But it doesn't look like it's going to bring too much in the way of rainfall with it at this stage. So it's looking like a bit of a dry wind change. Um, There are some indications in some model guidance that towards the um, end of next week or perhaps next weekend, it's a long way away just yet. Mm. So we'll see what happens between now and then. But there is some indications that we may see the return of um, perhaps a little bit more moisture and some slightly cooler conditions spreading across southeast Queensland. But we'll, um, we'll keep an eye on that forecast, I think, over the next several days. I think even the off chance at this point might help people get through their afternoon. Thank you very much, Kimber, for your time on the Country Hour. My pleasure. Thank you. Kimber Wong, the forecaster on duty at the Weather Bureau. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. It's 20 to 1. If you'd like to send me a text message this afternoon, you can on 0487 I'd love to hear if you've got a Friday afternoon productivity tip. Maybe it's an anti-productivity tip. I uh, would be keen to hear from you. Zero four eight seven double nine three triple two. Now, Chris from Gympie has sent me a text. 
He says, the harder I work, the richer the boss gets and the more burnt out I get. In my experience, my wages only ever go up because of CPI increases or government intervention. Thanks for sharing your views, Chris. You can share your views with me as well, 0487993222. Well, I'll tell you an industry that's been hard at work. Central Queensland pineapple growers have started picking. A mild, dry winter proved ideal for their fruit. Tonnages and quality is up. It's good news after the glut that caused by a mass natural flowering event when pineapples across the state ripened at the same time. Bungandara grower Barry Brooks says the weather did mean they started picking a little earlier than expected. It's been a fairly good growing year for pineapples. With the milder winter has actually helped a lot of the growth and it's stimulated a bit earlier harvesting at the moment, which we're picking a few weeks earlier than we would normally what at the moment. How's the crop looking? Is the quality good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we're looking at very good. A, a, a good continue, continuity of fruit for the next, you know, through the next year, you know, for the plants in the ground. At the moment it's a little dry, so the fresh plantings are suffering a little bit with the dry, but that helps the older ones with their roots and waterborne problems. What are your tonnages looking like this year? Tonnages are up. A uh, number of plants is probably up a little bit too, and fr- so fruit size is up. We're down a little on a couple of the patches uh, that had a little bit of, didn't do as well early on, on the processing golden circle pineapples. They're a bit smaller at the moment, which is quite good because they don't like the big fruit. Anything too big is too big for the tin. We look like the recovery there should be very good. How much of your pineapples are going to golden circle and how much will just go sort of straight on supermarket shelves? Probably about 50-50, be about half and half. They're different varieties, basically. We grow half of each variety, like the hybrids for the for the fresh market and the smooth cayenne for the canning market, processing market. What are you hearing from other growers in the region and outside of the region? Is it sort of a, across the board in the pineapple industry, things are looking okay this season? Yes. The only major problem is, as my son has just been talking about is the ageing farmer and the lack of coming lack of to come in the difficulty to get into the industry now expenses and time lapse we're just not seeing newer growers coming on and staff staff is a continual problem it always is you know backpackers fill a small part of the gap but you know you need basically in the modern world today we need continuity supplies. If people buy a, a fresh pineapple today, they want to buy it next week and the week after, and they would all like it to be the same, that there was no, no difference in taste, flavour, price, so you can budget for it. In terms of staff, have you managed to get enough people this year? Yes, yes. We've swung more away from backpackers and have more locals work for us now. You know, and that's, that's changes in things. When you have a, a backpacker, it's too ups and downs you know either feast or famine with with workers and the training and with our type of operation and most of the farms now are a continuous operation either harvest or as much as possible through the year and if you're not harvesting you're planting or doing some other work so you need to upskill a bit and and uh, if you've got the you've got the 
if your workforce is moving on all the time, you're forever retraining. So it's better if you can get people that know what they're doing. How are prices looking for pineapples at the moment? Prices have been fairly good this year, but that was generally because of the shortfall earlier on. There's limited supplies coming onto the market, so we cannot really see, like last year we saw a massive glut early in the year when everything come earlier. Well, this year with the more moderate weather, we've been able to regulate the flow of fruit towards from from flowering through to harvest. So we should sort of expect a steady supply of pineapples over summer rather than the big the big rush, the big glut like there was last year? We're hoping so. And, and a lot of our customers, juice bars, salad bars, are hoping for the same too because they need some constant regular economical supply to keep up the fresh juices and salads all the way through, you know, which they're now a major part of our customer, not only as a home buyer to take home, you know, we, we have a, a lot of small processes that, that need need a regular supply that they can guarantee what it's gonna do, what they're gonna do. The weather is dry now, which is our normal spring, and that that also helps keep the sugar levels up. And, you know, the eating quality improves when you have your nice, sunny, warm days. And we seem to be getting plenty of them at the moment and more ahead of us, I think. So if you want a nice sweet pineapple, start start eating now. So expect some good quality, sweet, juicy pineapples. Yeah, they'll be very nice from now on, you know, right through now. And I, I can't see any, any break in the foreseeable future. Pungandara grower Barry Brooks speaking to Megan Hughes and I don't need much incentive to seek out a good pineapple most days. So it's great to know that they're on at the moment. It's 14 to 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour. If you'd like to send me a text message, you can on 0487 993 Know a young person who's up to something great? The ABC is looking for trailblazers aged 18 to 28 who are doing inspiring things in their regional town. We want to feature stories of people who have great ideas and who care about their communities. We're often missed in conversations. We need to be included. Trailblazers will have their work featured on the ABC and receive an amazing package of support. Hurry, applications close October 4. Apply now for the Trailblazer program at abc.net.au slash trailblazers. It's 13 to 1. Send me a text on 0487 2 I'm looking for your Friday Arvo productivity tips uh, or, you know, any feedback at all about what's happening at your place this weekend. Are you getting ready for bushfire season? Are you already ready? 0487 2 is the number to send me a text. And uh, Clancy has done that. G'day, Clancy. Reproductivity. It's important to understand that not everything that is measured is important. That's actually a really nice point, Clancy. He says, so Qantas in losing lost luggage, not in one or two pieces, but in the thousands, and then dispatching hundreds of couriers to then find that luggage. And in Clancy's case, a 180 kilometre round trip, they were statistically increasing productivity. That's a very nice way to look at that inconvenience, Clancy. At least you contributed to increased productivity. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. Send me your texts on 0487 993 222. Travis has uh, 
also sent in a text message coming from a 17-year-old cattle station ringer working in central western Queensland. My productivity tip is to forget that it's Friday and keep working through the weekend. Uh, Travis, I fear there's probably a few people in the same boat as you. Just pretend it's not Friday. I'll stop saying it then. Thank you for sending in your message on 0487993222. Now, there's been growing interest in regenerative agriculture. We talk about it a fair bit, but one of the barriers that graziers still face is often about how to transition from the conventional methods that have worked for them in the past to new practices that they've maybe never used before. In the Mary Valley in southeast Queensland, John and Ros Mercer have been going through that transition on their stud cattle property, which they've run for 50 years, as they explain to Jennifer Nichols. We're always open to new ideas. We're keen to have a look and see what's about. And so regenerative agriculture, how do you think that that could benefit your land? It's a good system. I think it's the way of the future, definitely. We can't rely on chemical fertilisers forever. But even so, regenerative agriculture probably takes less out of the environment. But it's got to be done very correctly to get enough production to feed the planet, basically. It's funny, Jen, how we say uh, regenerative farming is probably the way of the future, when in fact it was the way of the past up until this recent chemical regime after World War II. We're not reinventing the wheel, I don't think. We've just got to go back and look at the old ways and see how we can modify them for modern situations and try and get the best out of it all. To you, Rosmer, so what does regenerative agriculture mean? Oh, just utilising what's in the soil, turning it around to help you and you know to benefit everything, us, the land, the soil and the cattle. Have you started putting any of these things into practice on your land? Yes, we use sort of waste products like chicken manure and um, local products been made here for quite a while now called Natrobin, which is crushed rock dust and uh, soil stimulant. At present, we're fairly heavily stocked and we've sort of had to use more chemical fertilisers than we'd like to, but we're just, in the next month actually, we'll be putting more um, chicken manure, etc. on to get the job done and try and improve the health of the soil again. And just recently, we have bought a direct drill planter and we're just talking to people about what species to put in. We've had winter species in now and we'll come in next month and put summer species in and just try and improve the soil and release a lot of that tied-up fertiliser that's in there. It's fascinating with some of those root crops that can go in as well that really tap in, break open the soil, let the water get in when it falls instead of running straight off. Yeah, well, for the funny you say that, for the first time this year we've used uh, radish in with our uh, ryegrass just to see how that goes. Um, yes, and it's true, they, they certainly grow well and they're big fellas. They sort of, <laughs> I think one bull was a little bit off colour. I think he had a bit stuck in his tummy, I think. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, it was interesting. They're more like a swede. They grow quite large. Yeah, it certainly grew plenty of fodder and, and certainly big roots on it. You were saying one of the bulls seemed a bit off colour. How did the rest go on it? No, the rest were fine. I think he may have just had a big chunk stuck in his tummy or something. He's, he's eaten, yeah. <laughs> he's hoed into an actual radish big fruit. Radish. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he was fine the next day. <laughs> And how are things on the property? It's been pretty dry. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly been dry, Jen. I can't believe just two years after the last drought and then two years of extreme wet, like last year we were double our average, we were 88 inches of rain, I think, for last year. And uh, this year, the driest summer, autumn, winter I've seen there in 50 years. Amazing, you know. Really disappointing, actually. You're saying you've got quite a lot of stock on your property. What's your plan then? How are you going to 
cope if we don't get more rain? Uh, we've already started hand feeding actually using cane tops, utilising cane tops from Mariborough. They're quite yeah, good value and on our western place we've actually started hand feeding our first calf heifers with uh, hay that's actually been brought in from the northern territory believe it or not wow um it's cheaper than locally grown product and very good quality and where's your property out west rosmesser west of mooney um we do go to the mooney river yeah 4400 acres just all flat totally different to home in the hills at home How's up at Kandanga Creek looking at the moment? Yeah, it's uh, not too bad. It is definitely slowing down. But, you know, you've got to utilise it while it's there, but look after it. And are the cattle still in great condition? Yeah, well, we're doing our best. A few breeders are just sort of, you know, just slipping a little bit. But difficult in the stud business. We can't just uh, unload you know heifers or whatever you've either got to find adjustment for them because they're our future or hand feed them yeah, which we don't really want to do but we're starting to and with cattle prices going down does that affect your business much we were very fortunate our bull sale in july held up nicely 100 uh, percent clearance uh, and a good average price if it was held now it might be just a little bit tougher to be honest with you jen i think people realize that this could be a tough next few months but the charolais and charbray sales that have been around have been selling quite well actually so it hasn't affected the stud bulls i don't think as much as just the general commercial cattle John Mercer from Candanga Valley Charolais and Charbray Stud and his wife Roz speaking to Jennifer Nichols. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's seven, oh, no, six minutes to one. If you'd like to send me a text, you can on 0487 Next, we're going to just briefly stick our head in the shed. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. They've pretty much become a feature of most small towns these days. Over the past 30 years, men's sheds have become a critical part of our communities. The idea started in South Australia, but that three decades has seen them spread across the country and celebrating this anniversary It's now not just men who are enjoying the benefits of socialising and getting together and working on products like, uh, you know, on carpentry or other shed-based skills. Many women are also getting involved. In New South Wales, Robertson's Men's and Women's Shed celebrates all things that the Australian Initiative set out to do when it first got started. Brooke Chandler has the story. Put this on a drill and we can use this maybe to, to get into the hard to get this. I'll get the, um, the metal wire right. It's a brisk Friday morning in Robertson. The sun's out, but on the first day of spring, the morning air still has a bite. The shed is not long opened, and already the tools are hard at work. Things like paintbrushes, bandsaws, a welding machine and steel brushes. See, see that where the rust is there? This is a typical day at the local men's shed, but there's one big difference. As coordinator Claire Hewitt explains, it's not just the blokes who are putting in the elbow grease. The idea of a shed came up in about uh, 2017 and it started off with Um, some of the guys coming together and and coming up with the idea and then um, a few of us of the women said well why can't we be involved and have a men's dedicated men's day 
and a dedicated Women's Day and we also have mixed nights and days as well. The idea was a hit and the state government liked the sound of it too. The shed received a $300,000 grant for a tailor-made building on Robertson's main street, fitted with all kinds of tools, machinery, toilets and a kitchen. We've worked very hard and we did a lot of the work ourselves and the girls were involved in, in sort of fitting out and making benches as well as, as the men, so it's been a shared opportunity. One aspect the members are really proud of is the shed has equal membership from both sexes. The place is bridging the same gaps the Men's Shed initiative set out to address. The Men's Sheds are about men's mental health largely. Women have similar needs and it's also the networking, the camaraderie and you know the girls who always wish they could have done woodwork or metalwork at school when they were sent off to home economics. <laughs> Debbie Grono is 66 years old. She's wearing a red and dark blue flannelette shirt orange earmuffs and her reading glasses are tucked into her shirt. She says hanging up her nurse's badge for shed membership was exactly what she was looking for. I wanted to do something else that was with, with my hands and being creative and this ticks the boxes for me because I'm too young to play lawn bowls and bingo. Debbie says the shed keeps her hands and her mind busy and she likes working on projects that directly help her community. Things like replacing the wooden floor at the Bundanoon Hall or repairing the furniture for Mission Australia's Triple Care Farm at Knights Hill nearby. They've also installed veranda railings for a local resident who is blind. At the moment we're busy doing pallet Christmas trees to raise funds for the men's and women's shed in Robertson and it's involved the whole shed even the men. How valuable is it though that women can just have as big a role as the men in this shed? Uh, fabulous because we bring a different dynamic to the shed. Uh, we also do a lot of baking and stuff so we always uh, bring a great morning tea for the guys when they come down. Claire's husband Graham Hewitt agrees. We give the ladies the confidence to use all this equipment and uh, now some days we're redundant, we just sit outside and have a cup of coffee because uh, the ladies have got that confidence. This week marks 30 years since the Men's Shed initiative began. It's an Aussie grassroots invention and it's continued to evolve and strengthen local communities ever since. It is an important anniversary and the thing that a lot of people forget that the Men's Shed movement was started by two community nurses at Galwa in South Australia and a lot of men forget that, that it was actually ladies who could see a need. As the only she shed in its region, this one at Robinson attracts women from nearby towns and villages, some of them half an hour away. Because we were sticking our necks out a bit and I think we're really pleased that it's gone as well as it has and that the two sheds work so well together. Claire Hewitt, the coordinator of the Men's and She Shed at Robertson in New South Wales. Our thanks to Brooke Chandler for that story. I hope this weekend, if it's what you're looking forward to, you get to spend some time in your shed or however you like to spend your time over the weekend. My name's Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company this week on the Country Hour. Remember, you can get your news online at abc.net.au slash rural. And right now from ABC Radio, it's one o'clock.